Canterbury Tales, Chapter 10, Harvest Time Living off the smell of an oily rag over the years, we are always looking at ways to maximise opportunities that Warwick's farm provides, particularly in an area close to my heart, food. We are blessed by a large number of wild plum trees that grow along the banks of the water race that divides us from McNasty's dairy farm. We have been told that some of these trees could be extremely old, and most years they provide us with a bountiful harvest of fruit. Being rare-breed animal farmers, it wasn't long before we became interested in what I suppose could be termed rare-breed food. Just as it is important for people to continue to preserve the old-breed animal gene pool, to ensure that in the future, if mankind gets too clever in the relentless pursuit of the economic exploitation of animals, and some disaster occurs, requiring mankind to go back to the original recipe and start again, then we will still have some of the original ingredients. So too with food and seeds. Heritage seeds and the cultivation and propagation of them is something Warwick's farm will be focusing on even more in the future. But let me get back down from my soapbox and back to the plums. The plum seeds from a variety of trees must over time have flowed along the water race, and as the waters receded, they propagated along its banks. We have identified three different strains, all having quite small fruit, more the size of a very large cherry than a plum. Some are more red than purple, and the flesh of one is quite waxy and all is sweet, juicy and delicious. Apart from sharing them with a kiruru, the trees are quite high and about 80% of the fruit is inaccessible, except to birds, and I make sure we get our fair share of the pickings. Elaine waves her magic kitchen ladle and turns them into mouth-watering jams and sauces and chutneys and pies, and I am starting to get hungry, so I'll now finish the list. A good percentage of her creations, unfortunately for me, end up for sale to guests, and after sampling them, There are not too many who go away without something tasty to enjoy from the rest of their travels. Our harvest this last season was a little different to most, the fruit arriving late, maturing quickly and disappearing particularly fast, even our portion on the lower limbs. We've been pretty busy with guests and tours over the period, and I've been trying to find some time to collect a couple of buckets for Elaine to morph into yummies, and I noticed across the paddock that they did seem to be rapidly disappearing. Later that sunny afternoon I made some time to liberate some of them, and as I approached the back of the paddock I discovered the reason for our far-shrinking supply of plums. Tracy, our mischievous Angora-sounding cross goat, was reaching up on her hind legs, grabbing a mouthful of branch, and shaking it for all she was worth. I am sure I detected a goatish smile on her face as, letting go of the branch, the last of the showering multitude of plums cascaded to the ground all around her. I then watched... Hands on my hips as she proceeded to scarf the whole lot of them before gazing dreamily, treeward, at the purplish jewels, listening in the sunlight and returning to another likely spot and repeating the process. Not only had the mystery of the disappearing plums been solved, but also something Bruce and I had noticed and had pondered on, and that was the large collections of bleached plum stones we had found in various places all over the paddock. Plums recycled through Tracy. Over the years we had learnt through hard experience that you had to get up very early in the morning if you wanted to outwit a goat. For this reason, I decided as I headed off to look for a tarpaulin, not to try to keep Tracy away from the plums, but rather learn from her and attempt to beat her at her own game. Returning with a couple of buckets and a tarp, I ran Tracy away towards the lesser laden trees to continue her work and laid the tarp on the ground under my large tree and leapt up to grab a couple of heavy branches. I experienced the same delight 
Tracy obviously had, as I was bombarded by a shower of small, soft, sweet, succulent bombs of sun-kissed plums. Like Tracy, I began scarfing them before my human instincts returned and I began loading the buckets, like the hunter-gatherer I rolled that I had become. I had even the score with Tracy, and over the next couple of weeks between us, Tracy with her regular but small tree-shaking, and me with my infrequent but monster tree-shaking, managed to maximise the remains of the harvest to the satisfaction of all. Well, perhaps not to the nervous smaller birds in the higher branches, but hey, that's just life. A number of years ago, we cajoled Bruce, who was a natural at building things, much better than me, to put together a sizable tunnel house made from recycled lengths of six-metre plastic piping, a massive roll of plastic sheeting, and some old lumber Elaine and I had scrounged from somewhere. In a television-deprived flurry of creative activity, of which he is very good at, at, but alas, most infrequently, we had a tunnel house that was to keep us in fresh vegetables and tomatoes and save us a great deal of money over the years. The tomatoes especially were amazing. Old heritage seeds produced the biggest, juiciest, sweetest and tastiest ones we had ever enjoyed. Those that were not used for meals, Elaine turned into sauces and soups and chutneys. Some we sun-dried and any surplus was either sold or given away to friends. I remember slicing up some samples for visitors during a luncheon an afternoon and piled a collection of generous-sized plastic bags full of these tempting delights with the samples on a nearby table with a sign offering them for sale at a dollar a bag. As the diners were coming back with their second helping of desserts, I addressed them about our bountiful harvest of tomatoes and turned around to point to the bulging bags and tempting samples only to be surprised to see that the slices were gone and the bags had already been replaced by piles of coins. Turning back to the sea of smiling faces, I offered to find it more if anyone had missed out. To be fair to Bruce, he was pretty proud of his tunnel house and decided to utilise his green fingers to grow a variety of lettuces, cucumbers, courgettes, pumpkins and gherkins, as well as the tomatoes, over time. The tunnel house is close to the cottage, but is actually located in the paddock with the Gotland and other sheep in Pino, our ageing Angora buck. Pino's more recent name has been Unihorn, or Unihorner, since he got into a butting competition with Harry, famous tunnelling Gotland ram. He obviously lost the contest to the unhorned Harry. Gotland rams do not have horns, However, they must have very hard heads as Pino's left horn was snapped off at the base, leaving Pino most bemused and now twice as hard to catch. Angora bucks' horns are quite magnificent, similar to, similar to the Texas longhorn cattle, with a wide sweeping handlebar appearance. It was quite a blow to the ego of the old fella. I was no longer feeling sorry for him, however, a couple of months later, in midsummer, when I quickened my pace with mounting alarm towards the tunnel house as I noticed the door that had been left open to the world. The alarm first turned to grief, and then despair as I surveyed the total devastation inside the tunnel house. A dozen or so large plastic buckets had held the thick green foliage of the tomato plants, laden with dozens of variously green and orange-tinged fruit, had been skittled like a row of pins in a bowling alley. The limbs trodden underfoot, most of the tomatoes consumed. The small pumpkins, courgettes and Cucumbers have been separated from the vines and lay in various stages of destruction, and the range of fancy lettuces were hardly recognisable as the green tangle covering the ground. There amongst all this green debris was a peacefully sleeping, bulging, gutted, one-horned angora goat. I must confess, and this for an animal lover, let alone a rare breed animal lover, is hard to do, I allowed my anger to exit through my body via my gumboot, as it, in a not gentle manner, nudged Pino awake, Seconds before he shot back out the door, allowing my grief to return. Fortunately, 
We still had our original vegetable garden to pull back on, with its potatoes and carrots, spinach and broccoli. We also had another pumpkin patch where we have been experimenting with heritage pumpkin seeds. One of the most sensational pumpkins we produced was quite small and bright yellow and had a series of ribs along its exterior. Not only did it have a very nice nutty flavour to it, it was also a visual delight with this bright colouring, and when sliced it resembled bright yellow cogs, which certainly enhanced the dining experience. Another pumpkin variety we had wrapped its vines around the lower limbs of an apple tree, which resulted in a couple of very large light green pumpkins defying gravity by hanging in the air like enormous genetically engineered apples to the scariest degree. Both these and the cog pumpkins ended up featuring in our Warwick's Farm newsletter that we also published on the website. The summer months see me striding along the water race, covered in long red lacerations with a bucket fast filling up with juicy blackberry. It never fails to amaze me how the biggest, fattest, most tantalising mouth-watering ones are always about half an arm length away from where you can safely and comfortably reach them. It also never fails to amaze me that I will quite happily endure intense pain in order to find feed my craving to have them. Fortunately, unfortunately, last season's blackberry bounty was severely reduced as McNasty had decided to spray this nasty noxious weed. About 5% of it grows on the banks bordering this side of the boundary and his cows cannot even get close to it, so I don't know why he, why he was worried. I suppose he thought we wouldn't mind if he sprayed ours as well. I did manage to get some revenge, as the seasons changed, however, by ducking under his hot electric fence and liberating some huge and delicious meadow mushrooms growing not far away on his last pasture. A very old walnut tree that shares the paddock with Tracy and the ducks in the hay barn has given us some wonderful harvests for these delicious nuts. It took a few years though to realise that while we had a walnut tree that had that we had a walnut tree that had fruit, why it was that it never really made it to the kitchen. This was because there is more to collecting walnuts than just collecting walnuts. Well, this is the case on Warwick's farm anyway. First of all, the nuts will fall from the tree. You know the ones, those round, browny, ball-shaped things with the hard shells. Well, that's not what falls from our tree. Our walnuts arrive in thick, green, fleshy packaging that eventually turns into a brown, soggy pulp and rots away, leaving the ball-shaped thing as described above. Unless you notice these ground, these green round things amongst the other green things like grass, leaves and so on, then creatures like horses and donkeys will crunch them underfoot or possums will scoff them before you are even aware that they are there. Once you're onto this, you can then begin collecting the green walnuts and storing them somewhere sheltered where they can dry out and shed their green skins. You decide that somewhere outside close to the tree for convenience would be ideal. Somewhere the fresh air and the sun can naturally dry them out. That is precisely what the possums hope you are thinking. Returning with new green walnuts to add to our collection, you think it a little odd that the collection doesn't appear to be increasing in size, and eventually wise up that possums have located your cache in the old cooking pot you left on top of the stump under the tree by the gate. Realising how silly you've been, you then find an old onion bag to allow the air to circulate freely and hang the bag from a tree only to discover in your next visit that a hole has been bitten through the bottom of the said onion bag and you have no more wal- you have no more walnuts at all. You eventually clue up to the fact that you need to store them in a warm, dry place, not outdoors, and find a suitable shed. Once you've replenished your supply, if still available, you then assist the drying process by removing the brown soggy mess from the hard shell and discover that walnuts are a source of a very strong and able black dye 
which you then showcase to the world with your fingers over the next month or so. Once the remaining walnuts are dry, you can then shell them, a process that gets easier over the days as you discover there are easier ways than smashing them with their meaty contents to smithereens with a hammer. At the end of the section, you are left with a small jar full of very tasty walnuts and now realise why they are so expensive in the supermarket. If you have used your head, you have also discovered a wonderful new natural dye, which you then dilute and into various shades of black and dark browns and distill for your very clever wife to use to dye the fibres and wool she uses in her creations. As I say, nothing gets wasted, if possible, on Warwick's farm. A community of 20 or so guinea pigs requires constant feeding to keep the little metabolisms ticking over, especially the younger ones. Most of their hutches have wire, fine wire netting at the base of the uncovered section so they can access grass, and ever-fresh grass as we move the hutches around regularly. While that is the case during the spring and autumn seasons, when there is plenty of green growth, however, summer and winter are not so easy, and I have to somehow come up with a daily large sack of the green stuff, otherwise spend a fortune on shop-bought guinea pig pellets, and a fortune we do not have available. You may remember McNasty's huge irrigator that so enraged me as it sucked sucked dry our old well. Well, I am pleased to say that we have it working for us with regards to feeding the guinea pigs, or we have until he gets to read this book. Due to the curvature in a couple of places of the water race, McNasty's industrial-sized watering can overlaps the race, and even in the driest months we have enough lush growth of grass and watercress to tide us over. In fact, it's quite a pleasant task collecting the daily sack of grass in summer. The race, when empty, is about five feet below ground level, and due to its age and abundance, and variety of vegetation and berries, and wild ducks and pukekos, makes it a charming place for, for a stroll. It is also quite amusing when some of the dairy cows come to investigate the movement along the race and you look up into their huge black and white faces with their sad-looking, soulful eyes. Not so amusing as when you go to grab a huge handful of long-bladed grass only to shriek in pain as a long, jagged blackberry vine buried deep amongst it rips your hand to shreds. Oh, the joys and woes of living in the country.